Thanks for joining us for Life Community Church. Well, good morning. You guys made it through the miserable rain out there. I was like telling people, I wish it was snowing instead of raining, you know? The cold, wet rain is just so unenjoyable, but here we are with the hope of Jesus in our room, in this space, thinking about him. So um, my name is Liz, and I'm one of the lead pastors here at Life, and I love the season of Advent. I love the season of Christmas. I love that the whole church at large is kind of centered and focused on the same thing. We're kind of meditating on the, the same scriptures and the same story and the same anticipation of Jesus coming and what Jesus coming means, the hope, the peace, the joy, and the love. And I just, I find it um, just a really uplifting season. It can also be a really busy season, right? It can be distracting. Um, this week, we, we did some fun Christmas things. We put out some decorations. Um, Dan has been collecting, uh, like, the tinsel-lit kind of decorations, dinosaurs, for the past several years. So we have a, a, a several dinosaurs in our <laughs> lawn. And when we used to live in Baton Rouge, um, Dan had them arranged in a scene. They were all playing hockey, okay? And most people that drove past our house had no idea what the dinosaurs were doing because hockey in Louisiana wasn't really a thing. Um, so most people would slow down and just look very complex at our, at our lawn, like, what are these dinosaurs doing? Well, I, I can't say that it got much more <laughs> better this year, but... Dan and Ellie, um, my oldest daughter, they were uh, going to put out the, the dinosaurs and the decoration, and Dan was asking her like, what, how he should arrange them, what they should be doing this year. And my sweet daughter says that, you know, Christmas is about Jesus, and we don't have Jesus with the dinosaurs. So she said, we have to make Jesus. So they spent the weekend making a little uh, Jesus in his... Uh, little, you know, trough thingy. And so now the dinosaur dinosaurs are all adoring Jesus in my yard. <laughs> so we have a very interesting nativity scene. Um, I don't know what kind of statement that means as a pastor, so just ignore the whole situation. But if I live in a cul-de-sac, so not many people are going to come down and, and see it. But we have, we have fun um, with Christmas, and we have fun with Advent, and we have fun um, seeing our girls really glean the, the meaning of Christmas and what we're all anticipating, this coming of Jesus in the form of a baby the God of the universe, uh, becoming incarnate in a baby. And it's a miracle, and it's wonderful, and there's so much awe to meditate on during this season. Um, so this morning, we are thinking about this, this prophecy, this preparation that um, John the Baptist came to fulfill that um, Becky just read about in Matthew. Um, but this 
this scripture that she read about, about John the Baptist preparing the way and um, declaring that Jesus is coming, it's, uh, it's a word from a long time ago in scripture, all the way back in Isaiah. So we're going to read the original um, word this morning. It's from Isaiah 40, 3 through 5. And it says, listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills, straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. So this is a prophetic word that predicts this first coming of Jesus. It promises that Jesus is going to come in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of the barren landscape, in the middle of darkness. That's what Dan talked about last week. Jesus is the light coming in the darkness. Have you guys ever spent any time in the wilderness, maybe camping or backpacking, hiking, spending time outdoors? Um, Dan and I, before kids, we haven't done so much with kids, but before our kids um, have spent a lot of time in the wilderness. And this one particular time, we went on a wilderness trip um, in the Smoky Mountains as part of a grad class. And so we were with a group of people, and as part of this class, one of the skills that we had to learn was to set up a tarp and sleep under that tarp. So, you know, the whole group, we had about three tents, and then we had the tarp. So each night, you would take turns um, with another person, and you would do the, you, you would have your tarp night, right? <laughs> it would be your turn to sleep with the tarp instead of the cozy uh, tent that you can zip up and at least have some security in, you know? Um, so it came time for us to have our tarp night and to learn how to set up the tarp. So you had one tarp to lay out and sleep on with your sleeping bags and one tarp to kind of set up with rope to be like your shelter. <clears throat> and so after a long day of hiking, you come to the camp and the first thing that you do is to set up your sleeping arrangements, you know, so you can do that while it's maybe still a little bit light outside. Um, so we got our tarp set, situated, you know, we found the, the right place and the trees to kind of get it all um, just right and secured. And then we went <clears throat> with, to meet our group and help with dinner preparations and eat dinner and make our fire and do all of the rest of the things. Well, as the evening was wrapping up and closing, you know, we all start going back to our tents, or Dan and I, our tarp this evening. Um, we head back, and we have to turn on our headlamps at this point. So we, f we switch them on, and we start making our way back to where our tarp is. And, and Dan says, hey, Liz, you see, do you see that over there? And I was like, no, I don't know what you're looking at. He's like, do you see that thing reflecting off off the light like what is that I was like I don't know so we we get closer we we bend down and all of a sudden like we see all these little glistening things 
reflecting off our headlines. We're like, what are headlamps? And we're like, what is that? What is like shining and sparkling? Maybe it's like dew collecting on the grass, you know, as it's evening time. Um, but we bend down real close and we look, we see these little eyes looking back at us. And we see thousands of little eyes looking back at us. And all of a sudden, we notice that all of the grass is covered in these little spiders. Everywhere we see, there's these little spiders just reflecting back at us. And, and Dan kind of starts to lose it. <laughs> he just doesn't know how we're going to sleep on this tarp with the surrounding uh, bugs that are joining us for the evening. And I'm terrified of bears and mountain lions and things that might actually like eat me, you know. But this time it was the spiders that got Dan. And so I thought, okay, I gotta be brave. <laughs> and I, I talked him down and said, we're gonna be fine. Um, it's no big deal, they're not gonna crawl on us. They're just hanging out on the blade of grass. And, you know, it was so cold that night. It was probably like in the 30s. So we are, I was already wearing every item of clothing that I brought with me on this wilderness trip. And our sleeping bags, I mean, you know, you pull the mummy sleeping bag tight. I only had about this much room um, open and exposed to the elements anyways. So I thought, you know, it's, it's really going to be fine. We won't even notice it. So <clears throat> I kind of talk him down to laying down, going to sleep, you know, thinking this might be interesting. And eventually I fell asleep, although I did wake up in the middle of the night <clears throat> choking a little bit, you know, coughing. And I just thought, I hope that's some good protein that just went down. Um, but you're probably thinking, yes, Liz, the wilderness does seem inhabitable. It does seem crazy. Why would you want to go out there and uh, enjoy <laughs> um, the, the, the bleakness of the wilderness, right? It's a harsh environment. The wilderness can be a harsh environment. That's why we don't live in it. That's why it takes skills to survive in the wilderness. <clears throat> it's not always an enjoyable place to be. And this is what Isaiah is painting the picture of, that God's people are in a wilderness, right? And it's not only happened to the, the times that Isaiah is talking about, but it's happened to all of humankind. All of humankind is in a landscape of wilderness where we need a savior, and Isaiah, he is referencing a time in Israel's history when it was quite desolate. Jerusalem was desolate because the Babylon, Babylonians invaded their <clears throat> city, and it was a hopeless time in history. And in fact, when John the Baptist comes on the scene fulfilling this prophecy, prophecy had actually died out um, for about four years. It seemed like God was silent and God was no longer speaking to his people. There were no Isaiahs speaking God's word and writing it down and telling people. It was just silent for a long time. There was a period of history that seemed very dark and bleak and the kings, the lineage had died out. The kings had died out. There's no more kings. There's no more anything. And it felt like, where is God's plan happening? This plan that Isaiah talked about doesn't seem to be happening like it was predicted. It seemed like history was going in a different direction instead of the direction 
of fulfilling this prophecy that there was a coming king. And Isaiah reminds us that there is darkness like this in all of humanity, not just during this historical time, but the whole world is like a wilderness, hopeless and broken. And those of us that are in the world, leading the world, are hopeless and broken. But Isaiah says there is a promise of a king coming. Make way, he says. Roll out the red carpet, he says. Level the mountains, level the hills, make a straight path. Because the king is coming right through the wilderness, right in the middle of the wilderness. Roll out this carpet because the king is coming in the darkness. And everyone's going to see it. The glory of the the Lord is going to be available for everyone to see. No one's going to miss it. Because God's fullness is coming in Jesus. And Jesus is our good news at Christmas. Jesus is coming in the flesh and he is good news because he's coming to a world that needs saving. We know, Tim mentioned it this morning, like the the world is filled with unimaginable evil and suffering all the time. And the same world that Jesus came into is where we find ourselves today. Jesus came to a world that was filled with violence and injustice, abuse of power, homelessness, refugees fleeing oppression, families ripped apart, endless grief, suffering, sin. He came to a world that's just like ours. You know, on Wednesday, I was driving here to church, and I only live about three minutes away. It's a very short commute. And I hopped in my car, sped off, and on the radio, I hear the news starting to go. And, and NPR says, you know, thank you for, you know, your donations on giving on this past Giving Tuesday. And then it just started right into the headlines, right? And it said, you know, the nation's first case of Omicron covid has been found in California. An individual who was fully vaccinated was traveling from South Africa to San Francisco, tested positive, da-da-da-da-da. Then they move on right next to the next headline, which I had not even heard yet at that point, that a 15-year-old boy was charged with murder and terrorism in Michigan high school shooting. And the deputies rushed to the school, right? And around lunchtime, they arrested him in the hallway within minutes. But he was carrying um, seven more rounds of ammo when he surrendered. And I mean, and then I pull up to church, and I'm already inundated with the suffering and the evil of this world. Now, school shootings always get me because that was one of the first, like, awakenings in my life to the evil that was so close that it seemed. I was in junior high when Columbine happened, and that, that just, like, shook me as a sixth grader. It really, really did. And now I have kids in school, 
So the mom in me, um, you know, feels that to my core. And even um, like the next day, I think there was, by Friday, there was lots of schools closed in Michigan because there was hundreds of, of threats and social media things and schools closed just in case. Even in Champaign and Muhammad, we had our own little upsets. And we, we see that there is this tension of darkness all around, threatening at all times. There's no one in our world who can accomplish enough or is smart enough to cure the evil and the suffering that we all experience. But we try. We try to save ourselves. We try to put our hope in all kinds of things. We try to put our hope in leaders and in cures and in progress and technology and philosophies and religion at times and politics and everything except Jesus. But the announcement of, of Jesus coming, the announcement that John the Baptist uh, carried was that Jesus has made a way in the wilderness. Something is, has been done, and we don't have to, to work at it anymore. It changes everything. Jesus coming at Christmas is incredibly good news. And it's just the beginning of the story. We haven't even made it yet to the cross and to Easter and the resurrection. Now, sometimes it can be hard for us to see all the parts of this Christmas story um, and how the good news is jumping off the paper. But there is uh, some good news that we can glean even in the very beginning of this Christmas story in Matthew 1. So a lot of times when we open the Christmas story in Matthew 1 or Luke 1, they start with a, a genealogy, right? They start with this list of generations that we can see God's plan that's been prophesied about is coming through these family lines, these family generations all the way to Jesus. And we read all those names, and we think, you know, I don't know what half those say, so I'm just going to skip it. Um, but we have to understand, the way we understand Scripture is to understand how it was first heard to the original readers, and that takes some cultural work for us. <clears throat> so if you want to open up your Bibles to Matthew 1, or you could look at it on, on your app, I'm not actually going to read all through the genealogy because that would be quite a task for me this morning. There's a lot of names that are hard to pronounce, and we would have a lot of fun listening to me um, do that. So I'm just going to highlight a few of the names here in this genealogy. But I want us to, to look at the good news of Jesus coming even in this beginning ge genealogy that we sometimes miss. Now, <clears throat> the thing about genealogies in the time of Jesus is that they were kind of like likened to resumes in our day and age. Um, you know, our culture is super individualistic, right? So a resume tells you who I am, right? It's this curated list of my jobs and my experiences, my accomplishments, and it gives you this little snapshot of like who Liz Powell is, right? Here's all the cool things I've done gone on a wilderness trip to North Carolina, slept with the spiders on my resume, done. All right? Um, but in, in Jesus' time, the genealogy was kind of like that. 
Your family pedigree was your resume. That is what you showed the world to say, this is who I am. And <clears throat> sometimes you would curate it just like uh, a resume. So Herod the Great, he purged several names from his resume, I mean, from his genealogy, because he didn't want to be associated with them. So genealogies were presented as a way to be impressive, say, this is who I came from, this is my family line. But we see in Matthew, he did a little bit of the opposite. So there's a, there's a few things I want to touch on. First, um, there are actually five women listed in this genealogy, all uh, mothers in the family line of Jesus. There's <coughs> Tamar, there's Rahab, there's Ruth, uh, there's Bathsheba, and there is Mary. Now, these women usually were not mentioned in genealogies. Um, they weren't important. They were, you know, the, the family line was traced through the patriarch. And so men were primarily listed. And there's three of these five women are actually Gentiles, which means they are non-Jewish people. And the Jews are God's chosen people. So to be a, a Gentile is to be an outsider. You were considered unclean. You weren't allowed to worship at the temple. You were a racial outsider. And <clears throat> Matthew makes it a point to mention these women. So that's, and it's interesting, and we're going to look at just a few of them. Uh, Matthew 1, right away it starts, This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. That's as far as I will go right now. <laughs> now, it's, now it, this is the first woman that's mentioned, um, whose mother was Tamar. The story of Tamar is quite unpleasant. Um, she tricked her father-in-law, who was Judah, you see in that, in that uh, scripture, to sleep with her so that she could have an heir after her husband died. Judah also wronged her by not fulfilling her rightful protection in their family line. She was supposed to be given another husband to continue her family line, and he did not fulfill that. But the act of incense, in, incest that she committed was very, very wrong in God's eyes and has, is you know, taught about throughout the, the Old Testament. But, but Matthew mentions not only Tamar, but also both of her sons. So Matthew only had to say Judah was the father of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, because that's the way the family line went. But he mentions the mother Tamar, and he mentions her two sons. And I think that it's really important to understand that as an ancient reader of this genealogy, you would have read those names and recalled that story. You would have immediately, oh yeah, that's that family member, that family member, that family, and that's what happened 
in that family and that situation. And you would remember the dysfunction of the situation, and you would see that Jesus' family line continued through that dysfunction, that good news still comes from messed up families, that the king is still announced through this family line. That in Jesus' kingdom, there's no like covering up the ugliness. In fact, the, the darkness is going to be exposed so that Jesus' good news, his grace and his light and his redemption can come to all those dark corners of the world. We need to know that God works through dysfunctional families. Thank you, Jesus, that you don't disqualify us because we have messed up families and we have messed up things in our history. That's very, very good news. And it continues. So you go down a few verses in verse 5. And it says, Solomon was the father of Boaz. And then in my Bible, it says in parentheses, whose mother was Rahab. So why does he mention the mother again in this genealogy? Well, Rahab was not a Jew. She was, again, a Gentile. And, in, and more than that, she was a prostitute. Now, she um, helped God's people hide from their enemies. When they were coming to spy out the promised land, she, she helped them, and she hid them in her house. Um, and she acted in great faith doing this risking her life for God's people against their enemies. But her chosen occupation, still very, very sinful and shameful. But Matthew adds her in the resume. He adds her in the genealogy to remember this is God's way of working. He uses unexpected, broken people to continue his redemption all the way to Jesus. And then we get to the third unlikely um, woman. It says, Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Now, <clears throat> this is another mess up in the family line of Jesus that we should try to minimize and cover up and not add. No, Matthew adds it. He wants us to remember. So David, before he became king, he was a fugitive and he was fleeing for his life from King Saul. And there was this group of men that went out to the wilderness to protect him. They put their lives on the line for David. And they were called his mighty men. And Uriah, who's mentioned here, he was one of those mighty men. And years later, after David had become king and he, he, you know, he was protected and saved from Saul, he became king. He lusted after Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, who's mentioned here. And he decides that he wants to go and sleep with her. And after his sinful choice, he arranges for the death of Uriah in battle so that no one really notices that he dies and it's kind of covered up and then he can go marry Bathsheba and it doesn't look so bad. And he ends up marrying her and one of their sons is Solomon who's listed 
here in this genealogy. And so there's this, we could just mention the people that carry the family line, but we mention the other family members that add to the dysfunction of these stories. And even David, we, it's, a, it's a humbling thing that this is mentioned because David was a king, but he was also um, messed up. He was flawed deeply, and Jesus still comes from this family line. Matthew's not covering it up. He, God uses flawed people, dysfunctional families, for the Messiah to come. And that's good news for us. Jesus comes with good news to say to us, with moral, those of us with moral failures, those of us that are racial outsiders, those of us that are broken and sinful, that we're not excluded from the family of God. And Jesus comes to our suffering world filled with evil and darkness, and he makes the presence of God available to all people because he gave his life, and he's given us his spirit, and Jesus's presence is made alive in us. And that's the message that John the Baptist was, was saying. He was saying, repent of your sins, turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He was saying, all people are invited to the kingdom of God. No one is excluded. Jesus' grace covers all our sin. So how are you making room for Jesus this Christmas season in your own life? Tim Keller, he's a pastor and an author. He says this, in Jesus Christ, prostitute and king, Male and female, Jew and Gentile, one race and another race, moral and immoral, all sit down as equals, equally sinful and lost, equally accepted and loved. You know, the way we move into this gospel of reality is really through surrender, right? Surrender of our own lives, surrender of the mess we've made of things, surrender of his grace to transform us. Surrender also of our own efforts that try to be our own saviors, that try to control the world when it is messed up, that we are trying to just achieve our way out of the mess. Our way to Jesus and the gospel is through surrender. And that's exactly what we do at Christmas. We surrender to this beautiful coming of Jesus being our good news. So let's pray as we um, come to worship Jesus this morning. God, we're thankful. We're so thankful for your, your plan of Jesus coming, your long-awaited plan that we are on the benefit of, of already receiving. <clears throat> God, we're thankful that you fulfill your promises and we're thankful for the peace that you bring, the hope that you bring, the light that you bring, 
to our darkness, to our wilderness, to our, our broken and barren places in the world, God. And so we just want to worship you this morning. We just want to say yes to you, Jesus. We want to praise you for who you are and what you've done and the ways that you are shining light in our hearts this morning. God, we just, we love you so much and we want to worship you this morning, God. So fill this room with your presence. God, you are here and we ask that you just speak to our hearts As we worship you this morning, let us commune with you and be in relationship with you, Jesus. We love you and we thank you in your name. Amen. Stand as we we worship. All right, you guys can be seated for just a moment. We're just going to ask the Holy Spirit to just minister to us as we get ready to leave and... Holy Spirit, would you just come? Would you just come rest in our hearts and our minds? Would you come speak to us your hope and your light? And if you would want to close your eyes and imagine with me just a moment this week that was that was dark, that was bleak, that was um, a moment of wilderness this week in your life. Holy Spirit, bring that to mind. When was a moment this week that we felt that the reality of the darkness in our world? And with that moment in your mind, with that feeling in your in your mind, maybe even in your body, Jesus, I I just pray that you would would come into that moment, that you would show us in that moment your hope and your light, that you would show us how your coming to this world brings hope to that darkness that we feel, that hopeless situation. Jesus, show us how you are the light with us. Just listen to whatever the Holy Spirit might bring to mind. Oftentimes the first thought that pops into our mind is, is what God is saying. It sounds very similar to our, vo- to our own voice. How is he speaking hope? How is he speaking light to you and to your situation and to the situations of this world? Let's put our our anchor in that hope. Let's put our anchor in that thing that that Jesus says. Let's make room in our hearts. Let's, Let's roll out the red carpet. Let's make the way straight for him to arrive in our lives and in our world and in our situations. Jesus, we lift your name up. May we go out from here lifting your name up and bringing hope to people around us. So Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the way that you speak. And I'm going to speak this old blessing over you that we do every week as we leave. 
May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. At Life Community Church, we want you to experience the powerful, life-changing love of God. To learn more, go to lifemohammed.org. lifemohammed.org.